You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning. I appreciate again you being here. This is the fourth of these lessons, the last one. It's dealing with what lessons we can learn about divine providence from these very interesting, fascinating, but sometimes troubling, perplexing stories about the early sibling rivalries in Scripture. And, you know, we started off by looking at the first one, which was a very tragic one, Cain killing Abel, his brother, as a consequence of the problems that Adam and Eve brought into the world and that families inherit problems that we deal with. Sometimes we know them exactly, but most of the time they're rather hidden, subconscious in our lives. And our children bear out those kinds of problems, which is exactly what happened with Cain and Abel. And the lesson that I tried to get across in that story with Cain and Abel is that we are accountable to one another. You know, Jesus, I mean, the Lord asked him, where is your brother? And, and Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes, I am my brother's keeper. Families are designed where regardless of what sort of conflict or what sort of misunderstandings or hurt feelings we have, we are still accountable to one another. And that parents need to affirm the worth of their children, regardless of what kind of problems they may deal with, what they struggle with, part of the duty of being a parent, part of the the whole definition of what it means to be a father and mother, is to affirm the dignity of our children. Then we looked at Abraham and Sarah and the relationship between Ishmael and Isaac and the great story that we are taught there that Abraham and Sarah had to learn to give up control of their children. They had to learn to let God be in control of their children. And that Abraham had manipulated and lied and connived in so many different ways until he finally learned that lesson, which he did. And I made the point that I think he learned that lesson at Mount Moriah when God tested him if he would offer Isaac up. And it was at that point that Abraham moved from being a monarch to, as I said, a patriarch. A monarch wants to control A patriarch rears children to realize that God's in control. And then we saw that wonderful story last week about Jacob and Esau and the great lesson that it teaches us about appeasement. That uh, Jacob, because he was such a trickster, a liar, we have some chairs over here. uh, We can probably move one over too. Uh, This front row doesn't mind sitting on the floor if you want to sit in their chair. Um, Here's a chair over here. Uh, anyway, uh, Jacob realized that what he had done to his brother Esau was wrong and that he was guilty and that he feared Esau because Esau had grown in such might over those years. And Jacob finally, because he had wrestled with the angel of the Lord, he had learned a lesson just like Abraham had learned a lesson. That his role wasn't only, I mean, his primary role wasn't to be in control of himself or his own family, but to be a patriarch, just like his father had. And so he goes to Esau and he appease. He wants to appease so that the relationship can stay intact. So families exist together because we have a, a lesson, a purpose, a story bigger than our own selves. That a family is being used by God, and we're going to see that today, especially in this story with Joseph as a way by which God brings redemption to the world. God could have given up on families after Adam and Eve, after the mess that was brought into the world 
because of our own misdeeds. God could have given up on us, but God chose to work with people primarily through the work of families here. And so that's what Jacob does. He came to a conviction that he was a patriarch and he was going to do what it took to be a patriarch. That is, how can I bring God in control of my family? So he appeases to Esau and that wonderful reconciliation, heart-rendering story between Jacob and Esau. Well, today I want to look at the story concerning Joseph, a very interesting person uh, and unique in many ways. Uh, his story will conclude the book of Genesis, and it's a long story. Probably more is said about Joseph than any of the others in their relationship with their brothers. And as we saw with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there was a tremendous emphasis on whom they married and the children they had, but that's absent from the story of Joseph. I could be wrong, but I don't know of him actually being married. Um, he was? The Egyptian lady. Yes, the Egyptian lady, but I was thinking a covenant wife. Yeah. Um, uh, and there's no emphasis on his children, none at all. There's maybe an allusion to the fact that he adopted some children. And so he stands in this story, not necessarily as a parent passing on the great covenant to his children, but he stands in this story as a brother to his siblings. Now, as you know, it's a complicated story. He has, you know, altogether 11, 10, from, 10 who were half-brothers from uh, Leah, but only a true full brother, Benjamin, from his mother, Rachel. And there's immediately rivalry here among the siblings. And a lot of that has to do with the special kind of gifts that uh, Joseph has. Uh, he, uh, and this is emphasized on three different occasions, has these very profound dreams and his ability to interpret dreams. And he has this dream in which he dreams that all his brothers one day will serve him as their master. And he has this other dream in which all the stars in the heaven will bow down to him. And he, thinking he was special, thinking that he had been anointed, he immediately goes and tells his brothers. Now, what would you think if your brother or sister had come to you and said, look, I've got a prophecy here. One day you're going to bow down to me. Well, immediately, as you know, that sets up a tremendous sibling rivalry among them to the point it's even emphasized here that they hate him. That is, the brothers hate Joseph. And so this conflict begins to ferment there in the family. And Joseph, I mean, excuse me, uh, Jacob actually gets into that and he rebukes uh, Joseph for his own arrogance. Now, the impression I get is that unlike Jacob, who was a trickster, a conniver, who in a sense was not just self-important, but um, uh, a little devious in his actions, I don't get that necessarily. I don't see that as part of the story with Joseph. I don't see him as being devious. I don't see him as necessarily being a manipulator. I see him as being naive. Uh, it will say a little later on when he gets into Potter's first house that he's very handsome and good-looking. He was one of these people probably born, as you well know, with a spoon in his mouth, a silver spoon in his mouth. You know, he had this kind of winsomeness and a grace about him that was just naturally made him popular, made him esteemed by the people. And so he felt like he had been blessed because of these sort of natural properties, characteristics that had been given to him. And so when he tells his brothers, look, you know, God's given me this dream. You're going to serve me one day. I think he was thoroughly convinced that that was going to be the case. He was unaware of the kind of problem that he set and making that sort of conflict here with his brothers. Well, that story percolates on and on until finally, 
And this is where Jacob, even though he had rebuked Joseph earlier because of his uh, telling of that dream, uh, uh, does something quite unfortunate. We had seen this earlier, uh, but uh, he uh, favors Joseph over the other brothers. says he loves uh, Joseph. It doesn't say he loves the others. And they're very significant brothers in themselves. Judah comes to this group. Reuben comes from this group. Benjamin comes from this group. But that he loves Joseph and the other brothers sense this favoritism. And uh, we talked a little bit about this last week, I believe it was. Anytime favoritism comes into a family, it immediately causes big problems. Now, of course, one a parent, I think, naturally sometimes can be closer to one child over another, or a son or a daughter. That's just natural, I think. But to show favoritism, that is, Joseph is worth more, more important, more anointed, more blessed, more significant, more going to be receptive to my blessings than you others, naturally will cause great animosity in the family. And that's what he did. What, as you well know, he gives Joseph this coat of many colors as a sign of his specialness to his father. Well, the brothers have all that they can take. And uh, they uh, they decide to kill Joseph. And, and uh, Reuben uh, protests this and uh, uh, says, no, 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 we can't do that. He, even though we hate him and even though he's vain, he does seem to be awfully arrogant towards us. And he is the favored one. We can't kill him, though. And so what they do is that they uh, throw him into a pit. And they, to convince Jacob, you know this story, that Joseph was dead, they took the coat, soaked it in goat's blood, took it back to Jacob to say he'd been killed by animals. Now that's a pretty egregious sin, pretty, pretty horrible lie to tell your parent. That is, you have designed, even though not in reality to kill your brother, in practice to kill your brother, and then go lie to your parent about that too, in a sense to exonerate yourself, that now I ought to be the favored one. I got rid of this one that was my rival. I got rid of this one who was taking all the attention away from my parents. Now I should be the special one. And so that's exactly what they do, and Jacob seems to buy into this argument. Well, as the story goes, and it really gets kind of interesting, uh, I don't know if there's ever been a movie about this or not. There probably has been. It's kind of got all these little interesting twists that would make a great plot for a novel or a movie. Well, uh, some Ishmaelites come by and they find him there and they, they buy him and then they take him on down into Egypt. And there had been a drought in the making there in Canaan, but Egypt at that time seemed to be flourishing. And they eventually sell Joseph uh, to a man named Potiphar. Now, even though what's what most people remember about the story of Potiphar is this attempted seduction by his wife. And that's obviously part of it. But Joseph does something for the first time that we know of in Scripture that really tells and indicates a significant change in Joseph. While Potiphar's gone, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And he resists it. And he says, because this would be a sin against God if I committed this adulterous act with you. Now, I mean, obviously he had been around all kinds of sexual relationships before. He knew of all kind of, you know, multiple marriages and so on and partners. And he knew what that temptation was. And maybe, you know, 
it, it could have, you know, he, maybe he could have gotten by with it. You could have thought of that. Wouldn't have been the first time for somebody to get by with such an act as that. But he says, no, this would be a sin against God. Just as Abraham was at Mount Moriah and he learned, I think, to be a patriarch there at Mount Moriah, just as Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel of the Lord, he learned to be a patriarch there. I think what we see here in this story, when Joseph turns down this opportunity, is he learns, since the emphasis is not on being a father, but on a brother, I'm going to call this, I'm going to coin a word, a fatriarch. You know, fatricide, fatri, brother. He's going to be, in a sense, a brother as a ruler, a fatriarch. And he does that because his attention is not on him, on his good looks and on his charm and his grace, which obviously had swooned Potiphar's wife. But now the emphasis is on God. He makes that transition from thinking, what is all this for me, to thinking, what can I do now to serve the the purposes of God through my life? And this is, I think, a dramatic change in Joseph. Well, while he was there, uh, uh, I guess Potiphar came home, and as you know, she set this up, got his garment, and made it out as though that uh, uh, Joseph had tried to seduce her, and Potiphar has him arrested. And while he was there, uh, the Pharaoh's cup holder and baker, I don't know if there's any significance in cup holders, maybe there is, or bakers, but uh, they fell out of favor with the Pharaoh and were thrown into prison there with Potiphar, and they have dreams, and they're rather confusing about it. And so Joseph interprets their dream and says, to the cup baker that you will be exonerated and released from prison, but says to the baker that you will be killed by Pharaoh. And that's exactly what happens. And so word gets out that he has this kind of extra ability, this sort of this insight into destinies and fates of people revealed through these dreams and his ability to interpret dreams. And that gives him a kind of a status, even though he's still... You know, like a, like a criminal, he's still in prison. A status, though, among the Pharaoh, with the Pharaoh. I mean. And Pharaoh has these dreams, these dreams of seven, um, uh, these slick cows, seven slick cows. I couldn't get all that out. Seven slick cows, uh, which came out of the Nile eating seven fat cows. It must have been a pretty dramatic uh, dream. Uh, and it stuck with him, and he was uh, perplexed by it, very troubled by that dream. And but he had heard that uh, Joseph had this ability to interpret dreams, and so he goes and uh, talks to Joseph about that, and Joseph knows exactly what that means. All right, you're going to have seven years of of good weather, uh, bountiful crops, and wealth and prosperity. Then this will be followed by seven lean years of drought and famine. And so Pharaoh took that as really a a prediction that he better work hard, store up for seven years to prepare for seven bad years. And that's exactly what happened. And that so impressed Pharaoh that he made Joseph not only a ruler of various things, but the ruler over all of Egypt. Now again, showing just the kind of innate, inherent power, attraction, intelligence, 
uh, insight, ability to influence people. He obviously was a special person just out of something like that to be able all of a sudden now become the ruler over all of Egypt. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does for him. Now you think, now that just doesn't seem likely, does it? How can that be? Well, I think what we see, especially as the scriptures tell the story this way, is that a story is being told. A plot is unveiling, revealing that God is at hand through the work of this person. This one individual now who by by the crimes of his brothers, in a sense, were brought in to, uh, to Egypt as a slave. But now he is the ruler of all of Egypt. Why? Is this just a story of great success, of lucky uh, events that happened to a person? Is this uh, the kind of account of a person's life that in spite of who they are, these wonderful things happen to them? And we're going to find out the answer is no. There's a reason why this is happening. That he's down in Egypt for a reason. Well, um, the great famine now has taken over and the people from Canaan are starving. And these are the family members of Joseph. And they hear that things are better, a lot better down in Egypt. And so they go down into Egypt. And while they are there, Joseph sees them. Uh, and this is when the story really gets uh, significant. In uh, how he tries to relate to his brothers. Now, I'll come back to the narrative in just a second, but I want to sort of interject a few ideas about this. What we're going to see about Joseph is that obviously he was a gifted person. Obviously, he had this kind of capacity to see how things unfold in other people's lives. His interpretation of dreams, his conviction that he was there for the right reason, that God had put him there. But what he is going to do, from one point of view, doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, it even seems um, wrong, and it seems to be petty and somewhat vindictive, what he's going to do. But he's going to act in a way towards his brothers for a reason, for a purpose. There's a goal in mind with what he's going to do. In isolation, these events are going to sound kind of selfish and mean-spirited. But according to the end that Joseph sees, and he has this ability to see where all this is going to go, what we find is that the hand of God is going to work through these. Well, Joseph meets his brothers there in chapter 42, and uh, he calls them spies. Now, that doesn't sound like a nice thing to do. Why would he want to argue that they're spies? And he told them to return home, otherwise he's going to have them all killed, to get their youngest brother. And that's Benjamin. That's the brother, his full brother. The others are half-brothers. Benjamin didn't come with him, stayed with Jacob back up in Canaan. And they left Simeon there, surety, and they go up and they get uh, Benjamin and return. And it emphasizes, and this is the first of three times, that... Um, uh, he had overheard his his brothers speaking in Hebrew, not in Egypt, that they had regretted that they had sold their brother in slavery. They didn't know Joseph was hearing them. They didn't know he could understand Hebrew. And it mentions now for the first of three times that Joseph wept. It broke his heart to hear this. Now, let's pause for a, think, for a second and think, why, why did that break his heart? Now, you could think 
that he he was so angry, so vengeful, vindictive at that moment that his emotions just overwhelmed him, overcame him, and he burst out in kind of tears of anger and wrath. You could think of it that way. But that's not what he hears. What he hears when he overhears his brother saying that they regret that is not this is this is a good cause or a license for me to seek vengeance and retaliation against my siblings. What he, I think, cries about is that he knows a, a wonderful, powerful story is unfolding here in front of him. That he is now being caught up into this divine plan that brings together the intricacies and complexities of families for a purpose bigger than themselves. And I think what he weeps for is not just his own broken heart. I think what he weeps for is that he is seeing the hand of the Lord working in this. And he's overwhelmed by it. Now, of course, I know his own feelings were part of it. You can't divorce those feelings from you. I mean, even at my age with my my brothers and you know, there are always feelings wrapped up in our relationships. You can't ever get away from this. But I think what Joseph is weeping for is that he sensed something bigger than himself here. And he's overwhelmed with it. Well, we see something very significant here. And that is a change in the brothers. A sense of repentance is going on in their lives. They regret that they had sold Joseph into slavery. And I think that's what, what Joseph recognizes recognizes a change in their heart and that that change is going to be very, very significant. Well, eventually, uh, the brothers do return. And soon as Benjamin comes uh, to Joseph for the second time, we see that uh, it is said that Jesus, I mean, that Joseph wept when he saw Benjamin. Now, that might have actually been because of his profound affections, I think, for Benjamin. The sense of tenderness that he had for his own brother could have been that. But I also think that Joseph realizes that he is standing before something even grander than his own wishes and designs, and that is the power of God working through this. However, uh, it's still not quite complete yet in Joseph's mind. It still not have it still has not reached its proper conclusion, and Joseph is thinking that I'm going to have to now do something else to move this plot along, so to speak. I'm going to have to add something to what's happening here with my brothers here so that the hand of the Lord really can become evident in our relationships. Well, Joseph has a big party and a banquet for them and uh, he fills all their bags with grain and as, so that they can go back and uh, feed their families. However, though, now this sounds rather devious. What Joseph did is that he put a silver cup in Benjamin's bag, hid it in there, down there in the bag filled with grain. And so they're all leaving, going back, and Joseph sends a guard out there to stop them and say, somebody has stolen this silver cup. And lo and behold, they find it in Benjamin's bag. Now, is that a trick? Was that an act of vengeance? Was Joseph being petty? I'm, I'm being rhetorical and asking those questions. I don't, I don't think he is. I think there's a reason for this. I wouldn't have come up with this. I don't, I, I wouldn't have known how to act, you know, in that way to further this story. But that's what Joseph does. And um, in doing so, what uh, Joseph gets his gets the brothers to admit in doing this 
is that indeed something has gone wrong in their lives for which they are not necessarily directly responsible. That they're burying a guilt, a shame, that they necessarily haven't brought upon themselves. They didn't steal the cup. Joseph put that cup in that bag of grain so that they would come to some realization that I, we cannot get out of this problem. This problem is bigger than ourselves. That something has happened, has come upon us, the shame that they were bearing is nothing so easily raced as just say, well, a mistake was made. Here is Joseph. They still don't know him as their brother. Uh, has charged them with theft, and they are totally out of control. And so Joseph makes Benjamin his slave. Now, Judah, one of the brothers, half-brother to Joseph at this time, uh, feels such compassion for Benjamin. What he decides to do is to, he goes to Joseph, this is in chapter 44, and he says, I will substitute myself for Benjamin. Now, we're not guilty. We're absolutely convinced that Benjamin was innocent in this, that some way or another this was a plot, a, a connivance. Judah, I mean, uh, yeah, Judah is not guilty of this, but his love for his brother is so great that he's willing to suffer the bad consequences of this unjust act that has been brought, has been brought upon Benjamin. Judah is willing to trans, I mean, to suffer on behalf of his brother. I think what we see here, and maybe this is what Joseph had in mind, we do know this is what happened, is a transformation, especially in Judah, and eventually in the other brothers as well. That they moved away from being just a, 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 a group of brothers uh, vying with one another for importance and the blessings of the Father. Now, because they got caught up into experiences that they could not control, they were bearing a shame that they didn't necessarily bring upon themselves. And they began to really be emphatic and compassionate now towards one another. A change of heart was happening here. And Judah, I mean, jo Joseph sees this. He sees this transformation going on in the brothers, especially there with Judah. So they moved from this idea. Remember, Joseph overheard them saying in Hebrew, we wish we hadn't sold our brother into slavery. To a change of character. To a transformation. It was no longer just we did bad, and we feel bad. But now, because of that, we need to change. We need to be better. And so Judah is willing to substitute himself for Benjamin. And Joseph sees this. Now, I want to read from chapter 45, starting with verse 4. There's several significant aspects about this. Verse 4. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent you, I mean, sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord over all his house and ruler 
over all the land of Egypt. I think that's what Joseph had learned. What Joseph had learned that this was part of God's plan. That he wasn't in control of his life. God was in control of his life. And through the, 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 the sibling rivalry, as, as irrational and as malicious as that was, that went on among the brothers, that God had worked through that to bring him to Egypt so that he could, as it says here, preserve life. Now, I read this. I think I told you the first time we met that this series I've done has been inspired by various authors I've read on these stories. One of them is Jonathan Sachs out of uh, UK, Great Britain. And he had done some research. And when I read this, I actually went and got some of this material myself and found it, I think, it ought to be true that this is the first recorded act of forgiveness in, in ancient literature. The ancient Greeks and Romans and maybe other cultures as well have ideals of appeasement. That is, I can propitiate your anger, expiate it in some ways by giving you things or you know, submitting myself to you. I can appease your anger. And the issue is just we, we need to get rid of this anger and the way we're going to do it is I'm going to appease. That's, that's found through in many, many other cultures and we actually saw that, remember, with Jacob. Jacob appeased the anger of Esau. However, though, what we see here is more than appeasement. He does not come up to his brothers and say, look, I want you to grovel to me. You need to pay me back. You need to restore yourself to me. I think what Joseph sees is that the hand of God is working with him to the point that now he can seek reconciliation, try to become a good brother to them, and what is needed to do that is forgiveness. He needed to forgive them. You could argue that he had every right in the world to imprison them from life, maybe even kill them. With the authority that he had there in Egypt, he could have done it and nobody would have asked any questions. But why didn't he do it? If what always governs us is the rivalry that we have with our siblings, or our parents, or our children, what always determines how we relate to one another in families is our hurt feelings, our uh, sort of mistreatment, our perceived favoritism, our rejection, uh, if that's all that motivates us in the way in which we relate to our family, then the story does not get any bigger than our own desire to get even with one another. That's the main plot that becomes what tells our story. Sibling rivalry. But that's not Joseph. Something else is motivating him. Another power greater than himself has taken him over and he weeps when he realizes it. That there's something now just pulling on him so powerfully that his heart just bursts and he weeps to this and he forgives them. When all our instincts want to get even with them. And as you you know, you know, and I've said this a couple of times in our lessons here, you know, there are no problems like family problems. And nothing can be more intense and long lasting and poignant and and uh, and hurtful and and degrading and on and on and on, as you know, that can go on in the family. So why would one ever want to forgive brothers or sisters who try to harm you? Why would you ever want to say, I will do what it takes now to be reconciled with you? 
even though you did me great harm. Only if you think by doing so, it, as Joseph said, preserves life. That's why he forgave. Because God was going to use them as we know God does. Continues to use these brothers and their offspring to work the salvation of the world. Joseph became, in a sense, convinced that he was part of this great divine story. It's a powerful, I think, explanation uh, to, to this complicated story uh, of, of why Joseph chose to forgive. He knew that he had to be reconciled with his brothers. Well, Joseph uh, asked then for Jacob to come, and as we know, Jacob finally does come down to Egypt in chapter 46, and he settles there. And I want to now go to chapter 50, which is the concluding chapter to this, and pick it up at verse 15. Realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, What if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? Now, before going, let's think about that. You know, Joseph had forgiven them, had given them a place to stay, had not in any way sought vengeance or retaliation against them. But the brothers were still afraid. The brothers knew the harm that they had done to him was so egregiously wrong and profoundly selfish and cruel that no normal kind of person would ever forget that. That they would hold it deep back into their either consciousness or subconsciousness thinking that there may be a day in which I will finally get my comeuppance. Maybe that's what they had in their hearts. That I would have wanted my day in court, so to speak. I would have wanted my comeuppance with my brother or sister for the harm that they did me. And they thought that. And so when Jacob dies, they thought their protector had also died. And so they're afraid. Verse 16. So they approached Joseph, saying, Your father gave this instruction before he died, saying to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of the God of your father. Now, look what Joseph does. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think he weeps now for a little different reason. I think he weeps because this breaks his heart. That he had given himself over to the hand of God. That he had paid the cost of erasing the desire and maybe legitimate reason for vengeance. That he, 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 he erased from his heart that need to get even with his brothers. And that's not easy work. That's hard. That, that is a full-time job that requires our very best efforts, our very most serious, profound inner struggles can be with families. And Joseph overcame that. He had worked hard. He had borne the scars of getting rid of his legitimate vengeance towards his siblings so that the hand of God could work through his life. And when his brothers come and assume that he was still, just like they, still wanting vengeance and wanting to feel superior and blessed over the others, it breaks his heart. 
And I think what we hear him now uh, weeping about is just how hard that must have hurt, been for him to hear. It grieved him deeply because he had worked so hard to become a patriarch, a brother who leads his own brothers and sisters and friends and families into the great covenant of God, that he had borne that cost. He had worked hard at being able to be faithful to God. And when the brothers are assuming that he still has these these vindictive motives, I think that just breaks his heart. And so he weeps. Verse 18. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good, in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. Do not be afraid. Now, I'm throwing out a lot of kind of rhetorical devices and, and, and asking these sort of questions, but how many families are fearless in a sense? How many relationships do we have in our families, husband to wife, parents to children, brothers to brothers, brothers to sisters, sisters to sisters, in which there is not some fear that I've done something wrong and they're going to leave me. I've made a mistake and they want vengeance. I'm really a selfish person after all. I'm really a vain, supercilious, condescending person after all. How many times do we come to this realization that I've actually done some harm? I've passed on the curses of Adam and Eve to my children and I'm afraid of what's going to happen. And they were. They were afraid. They had passed on that curse in their relationship here with Joseph. But Joseph, though, and this is where, to use maybe an overused phrase, all overwrought phrase, I mean, he's sort of a Christ figure here. In face of such, to use another big theological term, depravity, as he, as he saw in his brothers. How horrible is that? I mean, think about it. They sold their brother in slavery out of jealousy. They wanted to kill him because they felt like he was the favored one. Though that's a real feeling, it's unjustifiable. It's, it, there's, there's, there's no way to defend that. And that's exactly what they did. And that, that realization must have been so acute and poignant and painful for them at that moment. They are afraid, as I would be afraid. But here comes Joseph. The right of revenge is broken with forgiveness. The, 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 the power of retaliation is erased with forgiveness. Joseph forgives them and says, do not be afraid. What a great thing to do. My point on this is that families need forgiveness. Why? Because it's easy? No. Because it's self-serving? No. Because it's a way of, of getting advantage over somebody? No. Families need forgiveness in order to preserve life. 
in order to be, as Joseph said, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. I forgive my family. I, I will, will not appeal to the right of, of vengeance because there's a story bigger than myself going on in my relationship with my family, my siblings, my wife, my children, that I've been caught up into something of which the salvation of the world is being communicated and experienced and witnessed of, that a family here is chosen by God to be the means by which redemption comes into the world, or as Joseph said, to preserve life. And so I think Joseph here is a tremendous but very challenging figure for all of us. Will you forgive in order to preserve life? In conclusion, let me say a few things. Joseph's act of forgiveness is not just, all right, I won't seek vengeance. It's more than that. You cannot seek vengeance and not really be reconciled to somebody. You could just walk away and be indifferent to them. You're just not retaliating. But Joseph's forgiveness does more than just not retaliate against his brothers. He is reconciled to his brothers. He becomes their living brother again. That rift is now healed. That which was separated is now brought together because of his act of forgiveness. Also, um, as I've been mentioning here, forgiveness is a way by which the covenant is continued on through our own lives. We uh, should move from being siblings in rivalry to being a sibling as a fratriarch. Am I the covenant responsible? No, 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 let me. Am I, in my actions towards my family, the one that the covenant will pass through because of my actions towards them? Am I a, a husband arc towards my wife? Am I a patriarch towards my my children and grandchildren? Am I a fratriarch towards my two siblings? Am I? Are we? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, You ask a lot. It, it takes us to our knees, O oh Lord, to be caught up into this great and powerful story to preserve life. Thank you for electing us into it. And we pray, Lord, that our minds are acute, our hearts are strong, and our wills are resolute to stand there with these great people preceding us as examples of thy faith. And this I pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.